Good morning, church family. As always, it is wonderful to see all of you here today on what is already the last Sunday in the month of February, for how crazy is that? And nevertheless, today, church, we will be starting a new chapter in the book of Acts, that chapter being Acts chapter 7. And we will be looking specifically this morning at verses 1 through 16, or at Stephen's speech. Stephen, who as we saw in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and who was chosen by the whole gathering and appointed to the duty of serving tables. However, Stephen was not only a man who just served tables, but as we go on to see in verse 8, for he was also a man full of grace and power and who was also doing great signs and wonders among the people, a.k.a. was doing miracles, church, among the people similar to that of the apostles. However, some men, as the NASB puts it, from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, verse 9, rose up and argued with Stephen, or disputed with Stephen, seemingly because they did not like what Stephen was teaching and preaching about at this time. However, as we see then in verse 10, for this debate with Stephen, for it did not go well for these opponents of Stephen or for these Hellenistic Jews. And I say that because, verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So being that these opponents of Stephen could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, for they then, verse 11, secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And yet these opponents of Stephen church, for, it did not, for they did not stop there, but instead as we go on to see in verse 12, for they also then stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, a.k.a. they stirred up the common people of Jerusalem, members of the Sanhedrin, and teachers of the law. And then verse 12, came upon Stephen, seized Stephen, and brought Stephen before the council or before the Jewish high court, only to then set up false witnesses or lying witnesses who said in verses 13 and 14, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we, had heard, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And yet Stephen, for he doesn't jump up and condemn these false witnesses here, nor stand up and begin to swear at these false witnesses here, nor even does he violently get up and try to attack or to physically fight these false witnesses here, but instead, as we see in verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Or as another translation put it, his face became as bright as an angel's. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Rest upon the promises of God, since they will all come to pass. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. Rest upon the promises of God, 
since they will all come to pass. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And if you are joining us today, but do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to own your very own copy of the Word of God. However, if you do indeed take and keep one of our church Bibles this morning, the only thing we do ask in return is that you read it, which you can start doing today by opening that brand new Bible of yours up at this time to page 914, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Acts chapter 7 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 16, where Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, it will endure forever. Father, let us rest in that this morning. Father, let us rest in the fact that you are a faithful, promise-keeping God, and we can practice the fruit of the Spirit of patience, knowing that all of your promises, Lord, that they will come to pass. And Father, we can trust in you because you are God. You are sovereign. You are faithful. You are good. You keep all of your promises, even when we are unfaithful, for you cannot help yourself. And thus, let us rest in that fact and that reality this morning. Father, I pray at this time that you open the ears of these dear ones here, that you open their eyes to the beauty of your word, and that you soften their hearts to be able to receive your word in faith this morning. And Father, I pray that you help my lisping and my stammering tongue to be able to faithfully preach your word with confidence, not confidence in myself, Father, but confidence in your word, a word that is infallible and inerrant and perfect and that only speaks the truth. Father, I pray that this word that I deliver to your people at this time, that it be edifying to them and that it builds them up in the faith at this time, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And above all else, Father, I pray that the message this morning, that it glorifies you. Father, do this wonderful work we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning is point number one. Be patient waiting on the promises of God. Point number one, be patient waiting on the promises of God. Verses one through eight. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So after the false witnesses, or the lying witnesses, twisted the words of Stephen before the Sanhedrin, and all who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel, for the high priest then, as we see in verse 1, said, 
are these things so? In essence, asking if these charges that were brought against Stephen, that he never ceases to speak, the wor- to speak words against this holy place and the law, and that he said that Jesus will destroy the temple and will change the customs that Moses t- delivered to us, if they were in fact true. To which Stephen then begins his speech. And this is really, really important for us to grasp here, church, about Stephen's speech. That being, to summarize F.F. Bruce here, that Stephen's speech was by no means calculated to secure an acquittal or a declaration of innocence before the Sanhedrin. Rather, it is a defense of pure Christianity as God's appointed way of worship. And Stephen sets forth here arguments about why the charges against him were travesties. And the major theme of his speech was its insistence that the presence of God is not restricted to any one land or to any material building. As God revealed himself to Abraham long before Abraham settled in the Holy Land. And another major theme of this speech was its insistence that the Jewish people's refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah was consistent with their attitude toward God's messengers from the beginning of their national history, as even Joseph's brothers hated him, although he was God's predestined deliverer for them. And thus, with that overview of Stephen's speech in mind, for Stephen then begins his speech here, By saying in verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Stephen calling them brothers because they were Jews and fathers as a way to show respect to these members of the Sanhedrin. Only to then note that the God of glory appeared, verse 2, to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Inherent. Not that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was already in the promised land church, or already in the holy land church, or already in Canaan church, but that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia church. Stephen seemingly noting here that God originally appeared to and called Abraham while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans as Genesis 15, 7 alludes to, Ur of the Chaldeans being located, more broadly speaking, in Mesopotamia church. And as we go on to see in verse 3, for God said to this man named Abraham, a man whose family, mind you, church, served other gods, as Joshua 24, verse 2 notes, 2, verse 3, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you or as the NIV puts it, to leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. To which Abraham then didn't refuse to leave his country here or say, no way, not happening, for I am not leaving my people here. But instead, as we go on to see in verse 4, for Abraham then went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And that Abraham just listened to God's command here and left his people, left his land, and traveled from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, which was about 500 miles away. To which, verse 4, after Abraham's father, Terah, died, God removed Abraham from there into this land in which you are 
now living. And that following the death of Abraham's father, Terah, God then brought Abraham out of Haran and resettled him into the land of Canaan. A land church, verse 5, that God gave Abraham no inheritance of, not even a foot's length or not even a foot of ground in. And yet, as we go on to see in verse 5, for God promised to give it to Abraham as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child, seemingly pointing here, church, to Genesis 17, 8, which reads that I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And yet the possession of this land, for it did not take place overnight. And I say that because, as we see then in verse 6, for Abraham's offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. And that the offspring of Abraham would end up being oppressed as slaves in another country, not their own church, i.e. in Egypt church for 400 years, or for 430 years to be exact, as Exodus 12 verse 40 notes. And yet God wouldn't forget about Abraham's offspring here, but instead verse 7 will judge the nation that they served, which God most certainly did. When, Exodus 7 through 12, he turned the water of the Nile into blood and then brought about a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, a plague upon their livestock, a plague of boils, a plague of hail, a plague of locusts, a plague of darkness, a plague of death to the firstborn, and then destroyed all the army of Pharaoh who followed the Israelites into the Red Sea after Moses led them out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 14. To which Stephen then notes, as we see in verse 7, that after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place i.e. in the land of Canaan. To which John Stott then, church, for he wrote this. That we cannot miss here Stephen's emphasis on the divine initiative in that it was God who appeared and who spoke and who sent and who promised and who punished and who rescued from Ur to Haran, from Haran to Canaan, from Canaan to Egypt, and from Egypt back to Canaan again. For it was God directing each stage of his people's pilgrimage. For God was with them. And why was that? Because God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Verse 8, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And that is, Stott concludes, God made a solemn promise to Abraham to bless him and his descendants, and gave him circumcision to signify and to seal this covenant. So long before there was a holy place, there were a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. And God then renewed that promise he made to Abraham, first to his son Isaac, then to his grandson Jacob, and then 
to his great-grandsons, the 12 patriarchs. Now, more practically speaking here, church, for the Scottish Presbyterian minister, Thomas Whitelaw, for he wrote this, that when arriving in Canaan, for it looked as though the promises were about to fail, and as if Abraham was to obtain neither the inheritance nor the heir. But Abraham, for he still quietly adhered to the word which had been spoken, and did not abandon hope, even when God talked about 400 years of servitude for his future generations. But instead, Abraham just calmly rested in God and waited for the fulfillment of what had been promised. And what a wonderful concept for all of us to consider at this time as well. That concept being patiently waiting on the promises of God. And I say that because we are living at a time and living in a world where we want everything right now, right away, and at this very moment. And if we don't get it or see it or if it doesn't come to pass right away, for how often then do we get irritated and anxious by that or agitated and annoyed by that or even restless and downright grumpy about that? And yet, when we are given a promise from our God, Christian, like the promise of a future bodily resurrection or the promise of eternal life, being that our God, Christian, is faithful, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, and furthermore, being that all of our God's work, Christian, is done in faithfulness, Psalm 33.4, For we don't need then to get impatient about the promises of God being fulfilled or irritated because some of the promises of God have not yet been fulfilled, but instead we can stand on those promises, rest on those promises, and patiently wait for each and every one of those promises, since each and every one of our God's promises, for they will all definitely, even if they have not yet, for they will all come to pass. And thus my encouragement then to you all here this morning is not to leave your God or abandon your God or get frustrated with, impatient with, or annoyed with your God simply because some of his promises that you are oh so looking forward to have not yet come to pass, but to instead just be still and to know that he is God Christian and to just patiently then rest in his sovereignty, trust in his faithfulness, and hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering since our Lord is faithful Great is his faithfulness and the faithfulness of the Lord, for it will endure forever. Which brings us to point number two. The Lord is not merely a local God, but he is the God of the universe. The Lord is not merely a local God, but he is the God of the universe. Verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So Stephen, who began his speech in essence by talking about how God appeared to Abraham or revealed himself to Abraham, again, not in the Holy Land, but instead in Mesopotamia, now transitions here, church, from Abraham to a man by the name of Joseph by noting in verse 9 that the patriarchs, the patriarchs being the sons of Jacob or the brothers of Joseph, that they were jealous of Joseph. And verse 9, sold him into Egypt. Jealous here, church, at least in part because as we see in Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11, now Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But then he told it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. However, despite Joseph's brothers being jealous of him, and verse 9, selling him into Egypt, God was with him. And verse 10, rescued him out of all his afflictions. And that is one commentator put it, for the God who revealed himself to Abraham in Mesopotamia now revealed himself to Joseph in Egypt suggesting that in making himself known to his people, he shows no preference for one place or another. And God rescued him out of all his afflictions here, or rescued him from all his troubles here, meaning, church, from his troubles with Potiphar's wife when she falsely accused him of coming to lay with him, and from his troubles in prison. And then verse 10 gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler or governor over Egypt and all his house. Or as Genesis 40 verse 41 puts it, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. 
Nevertheless, verse 11, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But verse 12, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And that Jacob, the father of Joseph here, when he heard that there was grain in Egypt, for he sent out then our fathers on their first visit. Again, our fathers here, church, referring to Jacob's sons or to Joseph's brothers, as Genesis 42 verse 3 puts it. So ten of Joseph's brothers went out to buy grain in Egypt. Those brothers being, just for clarification here, church, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Zebulon, Issachar, as Benjamin was not sent. And yet as we go on to see in verse 13, for on their second visit, when Joseph's brothers again came to Egypt to buy grain, for this time, church, Joseph made himself known to his brothers here. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh here as well. Or as Genesis 45.4 puts it, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. To which, as we see then in verses 14 through 16, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And in light of that, scholar David Peterson, for he notes this, that Luke here appears to have telescoped into one or compressed into one various biblical traditions about the burial sites of the patriarchs, as we see in Genesis 23, 33, 49, and 50. Nevertheless, the burial in Canaan, or in the promised land, expressed faith in God's promise that the whole land would eventually belong to the family of Jacob. Though by Stephen's time, Shechem was actually in Samaritan territory, which only reinforces Stephen's rebuke against those who attempted to restrict God's activity to selected sacred zones and presents a challenge to stay on the move with God or to journey with God beyond just standard social and cultural boundaries to bless all the families of the earth. And again, very practically speaking here, church, For what a wonderful concept for all of us to consider at this time as well. That concept being, for are we willing to journey with God beyond just standard social and cultural boundaries, in essence, in order to try to be a blessing to people throughout this entire world? And that are we willing to go where God wants us to go, Christian, even if that means we have to get outside our comfort zones, stretch ourselves a little bit, and leave our security blankets behind, all in order to care for people who might not look like us, love people who might not talk like us, share the truth with people who might not act like us, or even seek to reach people for the sake of the gospel who couldn't be any more different than us. 
Therefore, lovingly, let me encourage you to always be willing then to go wherever God wants you to go and to serve wherever God wants you to serve, even if it might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, Christian, since our God is not just some local God, Christian, but instead our God is the God of the universe, Christian, the God of people groups from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, Christian, throughout this entire world. Hence why we as Christians then, as previously mentioned, need to be willing then to journey with our God wherever he wants us to go and to seek to be a blessing to people by ultimately sharing the word of God with people no matter where they might be located. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, for I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who is here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, how you can be saved by this God of the universe. And you can do that, non-Christian, by placing your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man, to live and to dwell amongst us, and to save sinners, non-Christian, sinners like you and like me, from their very sins, which he initially did by living the life for the children of God that they could never live, and that he, Jesus Christ, lived a life here on earth, non-Christian, that was not sinful like ours, but instead was a perfect and sinless life whereby he fulfilled then the very law of God, totally and completely and without any kind of offense, and he did it, non-Christian, for the very children of God. However, that was not all that this Jesus Christ accomplished here on earth, non-Christian, while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because he, Jesus Christ, not only lived for the children of God, the life that they could never ever live, but he also then took their very sins upon himself, And willingly then died as a sacrifice for their very sins by being crucified and killed on a cross at Calvary in their place and as their very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, he, Jesus Christ then, not only satisfied the justice of our holy God, but he also appeased then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of all that, three days later, then this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, who appeased the wrath of our holy God toward the very children of God, for he didn't stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead, three days later, for he, Jesus Christ then, for he rose from the dead, and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in his perfect life, in his righteousness, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life.
and to the Christian who was here today. For as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, for I'd like to do so in light of the fact that Stephen here, after being seized and brought before the Sanhedrin, where false witnesses or lying witnesses, in essence then, twisted and took Stephen's words out of context as they made charges against him, only for the high priest then to say to Stephen, as we saw in verse 1, are these things so? And thus Stephen's sermon then, as one commentator put it, for it was a response to a question here. And that Stephen wasn't standing behind a podium after some inspirational music was played, only to then look out to an eager audience ready to receive the word. But instead, Stephen was responding to an angry Sanhedrin who had just asked him whether it was true that he has been debasing the law and the temple. And how would you respond in this situation? I love Stephen's response, for Stephen is a guy who knows his mission and that he doesn't try to weasel out of the predicament, but instead just decides to answer their question with a careful and subtle retelling of Israel's history, which climaxes with the work of Christ, and that everything about his approach here reflects his understanding that he is to be a witness not a slick lawyer. And thus I know over the past couple of weeks, we have talked a lot, church, about being faithful when we as Christians are confronted by the world, or being bold when we as Christians are challenged by the world, or resting in the grace of God when we as Christians are being opposed by the world. And yet, what I want to point out to you all here today is this. For in those situations, Christians, when we are indeed confronted by the world, or contested by the world, or opposed, attacked, questioned, or challenged by the world for the sake of Jesus Christ, and we know in our heart of hearts that we should indeed bear witness to the King Jesus Christ before this world around us, for in those situations, Christians, as another commentator put it, for remember this, that we do not need to be on the defensive when we witness for Jesus Christ, but instead we just have to simply share our faith. And thus lovingly then, for do not overthink this whole witnessing for Jesus Christ thing, Christian. Whereas you need to figure out exactly what part of the message you need to sugarcoat or what part of the message you should leave out, or how exactly you should try to nuance that whole sin thing to this fallen world around us. But instead, in those moments when you are confronted by this fallen world around us and are given a chance to bear witness to Jesus Christ, for just make it your goal, Christian, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to just faithfully then give to the world 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead, all according to those very same scriptures as well. And that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, for we will be saved. Since although the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolish to the Greeks, for it is still, church, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Hence why we must always be prepared then to bear witness to the King Jesus Christ clearly and concisely and plainly before this fallen world around us, since it is the message, church, that this world needs, whether they realize it or not. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church family, that we seek to be faithful to you, God, in all that we do, faithful in waiting on your promises, faithful in going wherever you want us to go, and faithful in bearing witness to your Son, Jesus Christ, before this world around us. Therefore, give us the grace we need, Lord, to continue to die to self each and every day, to grow in the likeness of your Son each and every day, and by your mercies, God, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, God, the one who always has been and who always will be, completely faithful to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for this, this dear congregation at these times, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, give us the grace we need to not seek to water down the gospel or to sugarcoat the gospel or to pretend that we are a slick lawyer instead of a witness for Jesus Christ when we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Give us boldness, Lord, a willingness to go wherever we have to go, to serve whoever we have to serve, whether that's across the county, across the state, across the country, the continent, this world. Father, let us just be faithful to respond wherever you may call us. And Father, in this life there will be persecution and tribulation and hard times. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he has already overcome the world. And our God, he is faithful. His faithfulness, it endures forever to generation to generation. Thus, in the midst of the chaos we may see, let us be patient and steadfast waiting and resting on the promises of God. Since even though, as your children, Father, at times we may not be faithful, for you, Father, you are always faithful to us because you are a God who never changes and you cannot help yourself. Father, to you be the glory forever. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.